This episode is brought to you by Visit Williamsburg. In Williamsburg, Virginia, there's never too much of a good thing. Whether you're a foodie, a golfer, a history buff, a shopaholic, an outdoor enthusiast, or a thrill seeker, you'll find what you came for here and more. So ask yourself, what is it you want? Discover Williamsburg and plan your trip at visitwilliamsburg.com. Another day is here and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Shadows of the Door is an audio drama podcast designed to scare and delight you. While rarely explicit... It is nonetheless produced with an adult audience in mind. Okay, so this is and this isn't an extra episode of Season 2. David and I really wanted to thank everybody who's donated to our Kofi to help us secure funding for Season 3, and also to everyone else who shared the show and helped us reach more audiences. What we present to you today is my story, Quem Infranos. Now, this is not an audio drama production, This is a full pro short story. This story actually appears in Shadows at the Door, an anthology. And to say thank you, I asked David to narrate this story for us today. So there's no sound effects, no music, just pure alt reading pure Nixon. That sounded a bit weird. We really hope you enjoy the story. Afterwards, join David and I for our usual discussion and also letting you know what is in the near future for Shadows at the Door. So it brings me a lot of pleasure to be able to say once again, gather around the fire, pour yourself some tea without milk, and we will begin. Quem Infra Nos by Mark Nixon A single chime pierced the ambient noise of the so-called quiet carriage as a smothered voice informed the passengers of their imminent arrival at Durham Station. Chinnery carefully closed his paperback and placed it into the leather satchel nestled between his feet. Through the window, the racing of terraced rooftops began to slow. Beyond the cobbled streets, church towers and meandering river, Durham Cathedral stood proudly, looking down upon the town while its Gothic spires climbed up into a dull and almost completely white sky. It was huge and dominating in its majesty. 
Chinnery rubbed the condensation from the window and stared at it, almost hypnotised. It stared back at him. He eventually left his seat and patted out the creases in his trousers. He felt the train come to a stop, causing him to sway forward in perfect sync with the rest of the standees. The cold was waiting for him outside, and he manoeuvred his way to the exit. The doors hissed and rolled open. Chinnery hung back until the flow of departing passengers had ebbed and stepped onto the platform. The crisp air rushed to him, quickly wrapping itself around his body and settling deeply in his chest. He was barely through the barriers when the conductor's whistle heralded the train's exodus to its next stop, Newcastle. His business, in fact, lay there the next day, but so rarely was he called up north that an irresistible opportunity to explore had presented itself. After all, his last visit to the northeast had ended in a sleepless night in a damp room opposite what must have been Newcastle's most popular kebab house. Chinnery accepted as many speaking engagements as he could each year, adding a comfortable supplement to his modest income, and he preferred to bill the hosts the next day, as opposed to being assigned accommodation. Trains had always been his preferred mode of transport. He could enjoy the lack of phone signal for a few precious hours, and would often find himself gazing out of the window, a window seat being his only demand when travelling. These moments allowed him time to process his thoughts, and, after all, he'd had some of his best ideas on trains. Had it not been for an unusually laborious train journey to Cardiff in 2006, he'd never have concocted a credible way to kill one of his longest-suffering protagonists. Having never seen Durham beyond fleeting glances on his way to other destinations, Chinnery had always imagined that it must be a far more civilised place than its neighbours. The students alone would no doubt be better behaved. An afternoon in the historic city would serve him quite nicely, followed by a stay in a hotel room that was typically still £20 away from maxing out his budget. He quickly came to love the place, its narrow cobbled alleyways, ancient stonework, and how the old buildings looked as though they'd been reaching for each other over the last hundred years, the window panes warped from the strain. Chinnery's only problem with the city, he soon realised, was the endless rise and fall of the narrow streets. Rarely did it offer level ground, and he was forever either half-jogging against gravity down a steep hill, or trudging his way up another, and was ashamed to admit that he was out of breath before the viaduct was out of sight. Unfortunately for him, the cathedral stood atop the highest of these points. The streets began to taper as he neared the grounds, and after one final desperate summit, he reached the palace green, the grassy tip of the peninsula that lay before the cathedral. For a moment he stared up at the old monastery in silence. Though magnificent, it looked almost dingy against the dull sky. The stained-glass windows were dark, seeming to suck in and devour the light, rather than casting out its once resplendent colours. It now looked very much different than it had from the train windows of so many journeys gone by. He ambled slowly around the verdant area. The smell of moist earth was strong, a reminder that the damp and cold air would surely take its toll unless he went inside soon.
The cobbles soon gave way to pavement, and as he passed the surrounding gravestones, he began to feel as if the cathedral was growing in size. It practically rose with his every step until the towers themselves loomed over him. No longer the mere backdrop to the city, the cathedral was an architectural colossus, ready to completely envelop him. One of the main doors stood open, on the other was a bulky and grotesque door-knocker, an unsettling bronze cast of a lion's head, with large hollow eyes above a series of wrinkle-like lines to the side of a very human nose. In its large toothed jaw, it gripped the knocker itself. The gargoyle's very presence looked alien upon the huge wooden door, and though its accompanying sign referred to it as the Sanctuary Door Knocker, it seemed more frightening than comforting. Why anyone would feel at ease grasping the handle of the dreaded thing, Chinnery had no clue. He had expected a sense of grandeur inside the cathedral, but the vastness of the interior was something quite else. The nave was dominated by huge carved pillars of stone, each decorated in intricate geometric patterns that spiralled upwards until they turned and met the ceiling, where they spilled over into a sea of crosses. Gazing up at them was enough to induce a state of vertigo upon the visiting author, and he steadied himself as he began to sway backwards just to take them all in. The windows above the pillars were encased in stone arches, their stained glass panes echoing a dim glow, but no efficient light. Instead, the majority of the light was provided by spotlights. The cathedral's acoustics betrayed its seemingly empty interior, as the hushed murmurs of forty or so voices rolled over the stone, collecting in a strident hum. Walking softly down the main aisle, Chinnery tried his best not to disturb the few visitors who knelt in prayer. Even the most lax of Christians must feel compelled to drop to their knees in such a place, he thought. He stepped up into the choir area where the stalls and pews were of a much darker wood, decorated with gothic spikes and spires. Chinnery had always had an eye for gothic design, and would have studied them further were he not suddenly enticed by the decadently embellished tomb beyond them. Atop the tomb lay the stone likeness of the deceased inhabitant. A crown on his head, he appeared regal and dignified despite having lost his nose to the passage of time, or careless hands. The tomb's sides were decorated in a dazzling array of gold, blue, red and grey hues, dutifully repainted as time went on. As he examined the variety of coats of arms, Chinnery noticed that they too had fallen victim to a spot of vandalism. Scratched under one of the shields was a series of letters, the edges of which had eroded over hundreds of years. The fact that they appeared to be in Latin only cemented his assumptions. Quem infra nos est neobliviscere. His historical novels often called for Latin, and as such, after a moment, he was able to fumble a translation. Forget not who is below us. Though he spent a good few hours wandering through the cloisters and chapels of the cathedral, he could find nothing quite so mysterious as the words etched into the tomb. The cathedral had many tales to tell, several of them of particular interest, but nothing as unusual or ambiguous as the scratched message. 
Refusing to leave without satisfying his curiosity, Chinuri returned to the choir, and for his troubles, he was greeted by the sight of one of the cathedral's many vergers. From first glance, it was clear that the verger was living out his retirement. He rested his somewhat bulky frame onto a black cane, which caught a great deal of glare on its finely varnished wood. The silver-haired man smiled slightly at Chinnery's approach, turning to greet him. He was eager to answer questions, specifically those about the scratched Latin. So, you're interested in the story of Canon Nicholas Verne? It was more a statement than a question. Chinnery opened his mouth to say that he wasn't, but sensed his question was about to be answered, albeit the long way. You've got a good eye. Most people assume it's just graffiti. Although, I suppose, in its own way, it is. He eyed Chinnery appraisingly. So, you read Latin? I dabble, Chinnery answered honestly. The verger smiled, satisfied, and then turned to the tomb. Quem infra nos est ne obliviscere, or forget not who is below us. I admit it interested me for some time. Any mention of a third party often refers to God in places of worship, and you'll notice that the inscriber opted for the masculine quem, but no one would speak of the Lord in such disregard. Tell me, what were your initial thoughts? I'm really not sure. I can't imagine it refers to the devil or anything like that. No, the verger interrupted. Not the devil. Chinnery looked to him for further comment before realising he would have to prize the answer out of the old man. Then what? The verger's eyes fixed on Chinnery, his irises milky yet intense. It's not a well-known fact, and it's hard to explain without backing it up, because otherwise you wouldn't believe me. Do you mind if I show you something? Chinnery supposed every volunteer here had a secret theory or two about the place, and he decided to entertain the idea. By all means. The verger left and was gone for some minutes. In the absence of conversation, the area was unusually still, save for the rattle of air Chinnery could feel somewhere behind him. It seemed the heating system could only prevent so much of the draught. While he waited, he discreetly took a few photographs of the area on his phone. If this whole exercise unearthed something of interest, then he could very well use some details in his next novel. While he'd enjoyed moderate success for about ten years now, he was beginning to feel as if he'd mined most of his ideas. These days his stories required a great deal more inspiration. He scrawled a few notes into his ever-present notepad before returning it to his satchel, and by the time he was done he could see the verger stepping through the choir with a couple of notebooks in hand. Chinnery was guided down into the main aisle, and there they took a seat on one of the pews. The verger set the notebooks between them, but did not offer any immediate explanation. He sat down with his back to a pillar, making sure that he was not within earshot of anyone else before beginning. The theatre of all the secrecy was beginning to amuse the author, but he said nothing for fear of causing offence. 
So, he began, the biggest clue is what lies directly in front of the message itself. It took me some time to figure it out, actually. The spotlights above revealed the true extent of the dark circles around his eyes. Chinnery nodded. Did you spot the large rug in front of the tomb? The verger let the words hang, awaiting a reply. I did? Under it rests one of our less popular bishops, Louis de Beaumont. I won't get too much into him, but he was only appointed thanks to a great deal of nepotism. He was pretty useless by all accounts, as anyone here will tell you, but that's no secret. What is a secret? He stopped and lowered his voice, leaning forward. What is a secret is that they found a more suitable purpose for the tomb in time. That is to say, our friend Lewis is not alone down there. Chinnery raised his eyebrows. Forget not who is below us. It's literal, a grave marker. Precisely. So why all the secrecy then? The verger leaned back. Why else? Scandals, secrets and hushed things. He sighed. So, what do you know about the rites of sanctuary? Well, Chinnery began, a little frustrated to have another question answered with a question. I read earlier that the door knocker was used by local criminals to claim sanctuary for thirty days or so, or something along those lines. More or less the verger replied. Only the most serious of crimes, though. So it was common for thieves and murderers to reside here for a spell, only to be shipped off to pastures new once they received their forgiveness from God. So this has something to do with one of those criminals? Not quite. The verger looked down the aisle. Chinnery was unsure whether he was focused on the choir or if he was simply staring into empty space. It took me so long to find out who else was buried there, you know, he said, and then began trailing off. When he spoke again, he seemed to be speaking to himself. The priests wanted nothing to do with it, but I found it. So, who is it? Well, funny thing is, it's nobody special. Who? The verger shifted his attention back to Chinnery, and he gestured to the notebooks. I'll let him introduce himself, he offered the notebooks to Chinnery. All sombre notes had left his voice. I'd love to get your thoughts on this whole thing. It's a relief to talk to someone about it, really. A relief? Chinnery asked, incredulous. The verger rubbed a hand over his chin. Well... It's, as I said, no other person here wanted to hear about it. You're the first to share any interest since I found out myself. Please, have a look at them and tell me what you think tomorrow night. I might have something special to show you then. He almost declined. After all, he could easily have said his interest didn't go that far, but they both would have known that that was a lie. Besides, despite what the verger had tried to hide... The man seemed relieved to share his research, as though he was unburdening himself. So, Chinnery took the notebooks with a smile and promised to return the following evening. There was a subtle change in the air. 
It was just as cold as the day before, but now they lay glints of ice patterned throughout the streets. The dull glow of the sun had passed the main tower of the cathedral, and now touched those on the western side. Their shadows crawled along the ground as Chinnery walked away. He would be glad to enjoy a cup of tea inside the presumably well-heated bed and breakfast. His room was snug and welcoming, boasting a view of the river and the cathedral itself. There was no carpet, but instead laminated flooring, which seemed to slope as Chinnery walked across it, his footsteps no doubt disturbing anyone below. Although he had intended to shower and venture out for a good meal, he was surprised at the sheer relief that washed over his tired body as he settled onto the mattress. He contemplated switching on the television, but instead reached for his satchel and removed the notebooks that the verger had been so keen for him to borrow. He opened the first and looked at the flyleaf, on which was written in straggly handwriting, I fear these words have now become confession. Let it be said that I tried to perform my earthly duties, and I have failed. Now it is up to him to decide my ultimate fate. The text was dated 1539, the words rough translation underlined above the page heavily, and indeed a great deal of the pages before it. Clearly the verger had intended to share these notes one day, as the odd note of explanation was dotted throughout. As Chinnery scanned back through the transcripts, he saw a frequent crossing out of words as translations were corrected. It became quickly apparent that the majority of the texts were a translation of the writings of one Canon Nicholas Verne. For a good many years leading to the final entry, it appeared that Verne had served the cathedral with a passion that bordered on fanaticism. Initially, even for an avid reader such as himself, he found reading the canon's worship downright tiresome, with the notable exception of a considerable amount of space in his journals filled with disparaging musings on the others in the cathedral and of their true commitment. But even these lost their entertainment value after a while. Just as Chinnery was about to declare the entire venture a waste of time, events came into play near the journal's end that changed its nature completely. It seemed that, as the Reformation of the 16th century reached Durham, Verne became preoccupied, obsessed even, with keeping St Cuthbert's treasures within the cathedral. It is very weak, perhaps wicked, to write such things, yet I cannot stand by and let this desecration pass. Though I scarcely have the courage, I must remove what Cromwell seeks before they are within his grasp. I will need help and yet I cannot turn to my brothers. Some days later, a new entry revealed the extent of his desperation. It is an unclean business. Perhaps that is why my efforts have been met with such misfortune. The day before yesterday, I met with a local man of disrepute, and I must admit speaking to him unsettled me greatly. Yet he did speak of his reverence for the cathedral and his distaste of the king, now I realise he was merely attempting to sound sweet to my ears, but an agreement was made, one which may have sealed my fate. He was to arrive yesterday, seeking the right of sanctuary, and assist in taking St Cuthbert's treasures out of the grounds for safekeeping, minus his fee, of course. And indeed he did arrive yesterday, 
yet we were aware of his approach before he even got to the knocker. Oh, how he walked jauntily to the doors. A whistle upon his lips and a smile across his wretched face, the blood still wet upon his hands. We spoke of mere theft, not the taking of a life. The peace about him chills my bones still. There is never dismay upon his face, nor remorse. And now the damned man is but in the neighbouring room, calmly eating while wearing dear St. Cuthbert's cross. This is not what I had planned, not what was meant to be. I grow tired of seeing the scoundrel lurk the corridors forever. He is gleaming, waiting for his moment. I can hardly stand it. Suppose I were to go away from here. Surely I would be hunted once they discovered the truth. Yet to leave without Cuthbert's treasures would defy the purpose of these events. No, I must endure. Surely this is but a test. A later entry was marked in the notebook with a folded corner. Morning, noon and night I am haunted. Haunted by the fear that the Lord will witness my fall before the deed is finished. The criminal has vanished from this place, a betrayer for evermore, and so I am alone in my endeavours now. Once today I ventured to the cloisters, the eyes of my brothers were upon me. Without parting their lips they told me of their knowledge, of their judgment, as if they had the right. Curse my brothers for this, curse their wretched souls. For this entry the verger had underlined the words curse in indentation so deep Chinnery was amazed that the page hadn't torn. A few turns of the page later, Chinnery came across the final entry, which he had first seen upon opening the notepads. The Confession On the opposite page, the verger had gone on to write the probability of the events that followed, but one certainty was recorded. Canon Nicholas Verne was hanged on the authority of the Crown, on the 2nd of March, 1539. The execution was performed outside of the grounds of the cathedral, presumably after he had attempted to escape with the treasures in hand. Fern may have damned his brothers at the cathedral, yet they thought enough of him to bury him within the existing tomb under the cathedral choir, despite his desperate transgressions, despite his curses. Quem infra nos est neobliviscere, Chinnery whispered. It made sense to him now, and he began to feel rather pleased that he had not relented in his curiosity. Nevertheless, as the end of the night drew near, his need for full closure grew more and more acute. As no answers could come until morning, he put the notebook aside and instead reached for his own notepad, and began to jot down the basic details of his new discovery. It occurred to him that when he opened the floor to questions at his talk tomorrow, someone would inevitably ask him where he got his ideas. Usually he answered with a coy smile and offered a polite anecdote, but right now he was experiencing exactly what they expected, a plot practically falling into his lap. A few name changes here, a sexy affair thrown in there, and he just about had the beginning of a new novel. However, despite his enthusiasm, the words on the page began to blur, and no amount of eye-rubbing would alleviate it. Although he was not aware that he was falling asleep, 
It wasn't long before Chinnery slipped into a dream. It took some time for the image of the cathedral to form in his subconscious, but it was the Gothic spires that appeared first, rising from the ground into a blood-red sky. He was outside, staring up at it as he had before, but this time was different. He looked at his hands. They, like the rest of the world around him, were tinged with a dark scarlet hue. It were as if someone had wrapped the sun in red cloth. "'Heave!' cried a voice behind, causing him to spin around. Two men pulled on a rope draped tightly over a huge tree branch. The other end was a noose tied around the neck of a man draped in robes that did not belong to this time. Vern. He let out a sharp, surprised choke as he was lifted higher from the ground. His arms flailed briefly before he focused their efforts and reached for the rope around his neck, but his attempts were useless, and after a while his arms lost their strength and fell to his sides. But the poor soul was not dead yet. Heave! repeated the voice, and this time Chinnery noticed a third man clad in armour some feet away from the tree. He looked remarkably like one of the characters from his books. The two men tugged on the rope again, one allowing his entire weight to pull on it as he lifted his legs from under him. Chinnery looked back to the disgraced cannon and was taken aback to see the dying eyes locked directly onto his. Vern's eyes bulged out of their sockets, and even in the red tint of the unnatural dream world, Chinnery could tell the man's eyes were their own deep shade of crimson. He felt accused. The hate in Vern's eyes was unbearable. The man had served his god, tried to protect his temple, his saint. And what had been his reward? An agonizing death. Somehow, Vern seemed to blame him. I'm sorry, Chinnery said. In response, Vern slowly opened his mouth but only a rattle of a choke was heard. The sound was so terrible, so drawn out, that Chinnery flinched and covered his ears. And then the body was limp, the eyes open wide. Chinnery woke abruptly, convinced somebody was in the room with him. Hello, he called. No answer. The wind sighed through the trees outside of his window, rustling the leaves softly. He pushed his glasses up his nose, having fallen asleep without removing them, and outside he saw the branches wave at him. He sat up, shaking slightly, and walked to the window to draw the curtains. Through the movement of the branches, he saw the tip of the main stone tower of the cathedral bathed in spotlights. The beams seemed to allow the stone to glow, and although they weren't red, the windows and archways did not catch the light, and he found the blackened features disquieting. The shadows gave the tower life, a face, and Chinnery felt the eyes looking right at him. Some minutes later he had returned to his bed and lay facing the wall opposite, the duvet was now wrapped tightly around his legs, and he shrunk into it. He surveyed the blurred vision of the room, unable to understand why he felt the sensation of eyes upon his back. But the room was quiet, 
and he was very much alone. He lay still, slowly allowing himself to go limp, and if he did dream again that night, he was not aware of it come the morning. Chinnery awoke the next day to the sound of bells pealing out of the central tower. He pondered the unease of the night before, and his now alert and rational mind could only recall an imagination running wild. His trepidation of returning to the cathedral now seemed downright silly. Things in dusk or by lamplight can take on a sinister tone, but in the brightness of day he felt completely comfortable. Indeed now the cathedral seemed positively welcoming and ready to give up its secrets to those that were clever enough to look for them. The impulse, of course, was to return there right away, but he was committed to his engagement in Newcastle, and he was nothing if not a professional. If he cancelled at such short notice, his reputation might be forever tarnished, and for what? A gander around the cathedral? Some research and possibly a spot of writing? Hard to explain that to anyone, never mind the event organiser. No, he would honour his commitment and return later that day. His original itinerary had not accommodated a return trip to Durham, and after his talk was over, he was to train back home. Instead, he decided that he could simply get off at Durham and foot the additional ticket at his own expense later. Yet, even after arriving at these new details, the talk still felt very much like an inconvenience. It's not that he didn't enjoy public speaking, quite the opposite, in fact, but it was so rare for inspiration to come and figuratively smack him in the face. Better still, it would be quite a treat to write an introduction to this hypothetical new novel with the origins of how it came to be, how he unearthed the secret of Durham Cathedral. Although he hadn't quite done that, had he? He still needed to confirm some facts and perhaps look at the original manuscripts himself so he could justifiably say... He'd done all this on his own. And more importantly, there was the doubt that Nicholas Verne really was buried in the already occupied tomb. It wasn't exactly important to his fledgling story, but he sought closure. His initial frustration was later exacerbated when he was introduced to his audience as Britain's answer to George R. R. Martin, a frequent comparison that he felt was hackneyed, he felt most people only seemed to know authors whose work had been adapted for the screen. The audience also seemed destined to try his patience. Comprised mainly of writers, the post-speech questions consisted of variations of how they themselves could secure their own agent, eyes glistening with the hope that they were on the verge of uncovering the industry's big secret. So when the last of the books had been signed... It took Chinnery less than 20 minutes before he was back on the train for Durham. When the train arrived at the platform, it was five to four, and the night was settling in. In the end, his late arrival at the cathedral was almost perfectly timed, as he appeared to be the only public visitor at such an hour. Inside was all light and shadows, and the voices of a choir filled every corner, enchanting even his own cynical ears. He caught sight of the familiar verger walking a priest out of the building, and so took a pew to admire the performance while he waited. The choir consisted of students who rested their school bags against the stalls. Although they sounded magnificent, a man-child of a conductor stopped the students frequently to give instruction and chastise. 
He was incredibly well-spoken, and Chinnery surmised his harsh treatment was payback for all the lonely years in public school. Eventually, he relented and allowed the choir to sing two hymns uninterrupted before they bowed and he gave them permission to leave. Chinnery smiled at them as they passed. Mere minutes passed before Chinnery grew impatient for the verger's return, and he made his own way to the hidden tomb. As he stepped onto it, he felt something quite strange. A chill suddenly set upon his shoulders, as if something had sucked the warmth out of the air. He became aware of the draught he had experienced the day before. Ignoring it as an ordinary thing, he discreetly shifted his shoe to catch the corner of the rug and lift it, but the thin, dusty thing seemed stuck to the marble floor. "'Are you down there, Mr. Verne?' Chinnery half-whispered. He was not aware of his intention to speak until he had done so, but in response came a gruff voice behind him. "'Excuse me, sir, but the cathedral is closing now.' A tall porter in his late twenties stood apologetically as he noted Chinnery's startled expression, he was interrupted by the sudden approach of the verger, who moved with such speed that it seemed as if the cane was hardly needed at all. "'It's fine, Philip,' he said, somewhat out of breath. "'This gentleman is, is with me. You get yourself away.' The porter seemed to consider this instruction before nodding. They both watched the porter walk away, and when he was out of earshot, the verger spoke. Poor man has a pregnant wife at home. He doesn't half panic about her. Wait, he's just leaving us here? asked Chinnery. Only for a few hours. I, I said I'd watch the place for him. Really? Chinnery remained unconvinced. Safeguarding a cathedral was hardly covering a shopkeeper's lunch break. You work here long enough and they allow you a great deal of trust. It's far easier for them to allow me a bit of responsibility than to do things properly. The closing cathedral doors echoed through the stone walls, followed by the rattling of keys on the other side. The prospect of being effectively locked in had not occurred to Chinnery. He'd assumed the place would have stayed open until much later, although he had planned to spend an extra couple of hours if he'd gained access to the manuscripts he felt it a little restrictive to know that he had to stay here until the porter returned. He looked down the nave, and despite the presence of his companion, he felt incredibly small and isolated. See, the verger confirmed, just the two of us. So tell me, good sir, what did you think of my research? Chinnery put aside his anxiety and swung his satchel off of his shoulder and gave him the notepads. "'You know, I was surprised,' he replied, immediately regretting his choice of words. It was true that he hadn't expected the verger to be so learned. I, I mean, that is to say, I hadn't expected such a scandal.' The verger laughed. "'No, not what I expected either. I mean, usually the church's idea of a scandal is an illiterate bishop or two. But this—' This is something else. With a wry smile, the verger tried to offer a gesture that made it seem as if an idea had just struck him, but the man was evidently a poor actor. It was clear he had been leading to this moment since the author first approached him.
So, what do you say? he muttered, nodding his head in the direction of the rug. Shall we have a look? There was silence for a while between them while Chinnery considered the question. Somewhere far off, an owl called into the night. At last, Chinnery decided to call the man's bluff. You must be pulling my leg. I wouldn't dream of it. The reply didn't miss a beat. This is what you wanted, isn't it? Chinnery looked down the marble floor and followed its green patterns until it reached the rug. Well? After a deep breath, he made his decision by asking himself the following question. Would he regret not doing this? The answer was an emphatic yes. I suppose I've come this far, he said with a shrug. Excellent, responded the verger. He immediately ushered Chinnery toward the tomb, completely in control of the situation. In the dead of night, every sound within the high stone walls had its own resonance, and the tapping and squeaking of their shoes seemed impossibly loud in the silence. The author squatted and managed to get a decent grip of the rug, lifting it up. Underneath lay a relatively new and rather large piece of plywood which was bolted into the ground with large golden screws. And as Chinnery began to roll the incredibly dusty rug up, which felt like it could snap it was that old, it became apparent that the wood covered the entirety of the tomb. Health and safety, insisted the verger. The remnants of the brass around it are quite uneven. Somehow Chinnery doubted him, and had his curiosity not rewarded him so well so far, he would have replaced the rug and demanded to leave right then and there. The chill bellowed through the cathedral once more, strong enough this time for Chinnery to actually hear it pass by. In his peripheral vision he noticed the verger take a step back. It gets pretty cold in here, doesn't it? Who does that? the verger said, clearly preoccupied. Here, you'll need a screwdriver for those. And quickly, he took his leave. He wondered if the verger was having second thoughts, and as he waited, he looked up and glared at the stone faces in the walls as they looked down at him. Manipulated by the shadows, their smiles seemed downright malevolent. Eventually, they won their staring contest. The breeze became an outright gust as it funneled through the tunnel of the choir aisle, and he began to wonder where exactly it had originated. He turned his face away from it just in time to see the candles down by the pews snuff out. He swayed on the spot, so strong was the pressure. And then another sound could be heard among the wind, a sound that began to make Chinnery feel very uncomfortable indeed. A soft whistle seemed to emit through the aisle, and it took a moment to locate the noise at the organ pipes that surrounded him. Whispers of their tones escaped as the air rattled them to life. The tones were fleeting and the wind began to die, moaning past him until it became a sound so unlike the wind, a sound so desolate to his ears, that he wondered if he could stop himself from calling out. In the gust's dying throes, 
The vision of the cannon's body hanging from the tree rushed back into his memory. Jesus! he exclaimed. He looked up and noted one of the many crosses above him. The blasphemy was not lost upon him. Some minutes later the verger returned, himself looking a little paler than he had before. I take it you heard that? Chinnery asked, somewhat in disbelief of the events. I heard the wind, the verger stated, an explanation that fell uneasily on Chinnery's ears. He passed him a simple, flat-headed screwdriver. This is the best I could find. Chinnery took it, considered asking if they were both sure they were comfortable doing what they were about to do, but before he spoke the words, the idea of backing out now seemed as alien to him as excavating a tomb would have done yesterday. Even in this brief moment of deliberation, he saw the signs of frustration appear on the verger's face. As such, he got on his knees in front of the plywood. Well, the screws don't look too tight, and besides, there's a couple here that seem to have come loose on their own anyway. Had he have turned around, he would have seen the panic dawn on the verger's face as he took a step back. He expelled little effort and fastening the screws, yet the beginnings of sweat had somehow appeared on his brow by the time he came close to finishing. Something felt wrong, and his resolve began to waver. But something at the back of his mind was urging him to hurry. He turned to voice his concern to the verger, but noticed he was gone, no doubt in search of better tools in the porter's office. Chinnery waited for his companion's return, desperate for an excuse to stall his curiosity. Then, looking back down at the tomb, he shook the last glimmer of sanity from his mind. Just one little look. He worked his fingers under the tip of the wooden panel and gingerly lifted it up with a grunt. He saw some shapes in the darkness of the tomb, which he guessed to be four feet or so deep. Shifting to move his shadow out of the way, he peered into the blackness and allowed his eyes to adjust when he saw something that made him quiver. Something lay in the tomb. Chinnery had expected to see remains of not one but two men, but something inside seemed to heave and shiver. Could it be rats? His body began to stiffen at the thought. The idea of such things mere feet away from his flesh was repulsive. He listened. Perhaps there would be the telltale sound of squeaking, but no such noise came. Instead, the movement below was that of a shuffling of something, of bones rattling together. Just as he began to wonder if he had disturbed the remains somehow, the maligned image of a hand rose quickly from the darkness and landed with a tight grip around his ankle. Chinnery screamed. The hand could not have possibly belonged to something still living. The skin was no more, and the muscles withered and so thin that the bone underneath had begun to pierce it. Yet it gripped so impossibly hard with the strength of a man twice Chinnery's size. In his attempts to kick off the ghastly hand, he fell backwards, letting go of the panel. It didn't land loudly on the stone as it should have, but instead hit something softer. From out of the tomb, a terrible figure emerged. It crawled along the floor, squeezing itself from under the wooden board. The sound of its remaining ribs scratched along the marble. 
There was no face where its face should have been, but instead the flesh had rotted away, leaving only dusty remains of muscle and veins dangling in patches across the bone. And where there should have been eyes were only dark, empty sockets. It reached once more for the author's ankle and missed as Chinnery was somehow able to shuffle away. In response, it opened its jaw, ripping the last tendons of flesh apart, and let out the hideous rattle that was all too familiar to Chinnery now. With it, the breeze began again, carrying forward the most horrible smell of rotted flesh that forced itself into Chinnery's nostrils. The remains lunged forward, successfully grabbing his leg. Its steel grip did not relinquish, and it reached with its other fleshless arm clamping onto him. Dead hands gripped and cut through his trousers deep into his flesh. And then it began to pull him into the tomb. Chinnery opened his mouth to call to the verger, but through his shaking lips only a stammered, muddled cry of help came out. His sweaty hands could find no purchase as they slipped across the marble. Now his legs were inside the tomb, and with a final ferocious pull, he was dragged in completely. He landed on something sharp and wet. In the last moments of light, through an extremity of terror that he didn't realise was possible for any man to endure, he saw masses of bones all around him. There were not two men buried in here, but scores. The wooden panel landed with a bang as Chinnery sank heavily into the sea of bones. His screams, muffled to the outside, would become silent once the rug was pulled back over, and would go unnoticed by the passing families the next day, until the cries extinguished completely. Far off in the cloisters of the cathedral, the verger sat on a stone bench and made the sign of the cross over his chest. He exhaled loudly, watching his breath evaporate into the air. How many more, he wondered, before it would finally leave him alone? podcast network our first priority has always been audio and the stories we're able to share with you but we also sell merch and organizing that was made both possible and easy with shopify shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell and grow at every stage of your business from the launch your online shop stage all the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage whether you're selling scented soap or offering outdoor outfits shopify helps you sell everywhere they have an all-in-one e-commerce platform and in-person POS system, so wherever and whatever you're selling, Shopify's got you covered. With the internet's best converting checkout, 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms, Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers. Shopify has allowed us to share something tangible with the podcast community we've built here, selling our beanies, sweatshirts, and mugs to fans of our shows without taking up too much time from all the other work we do to bring you even more great content. 
And it's not just us. Shopify powers 10% of all e-commerce in the U.S. Shopify is also the global force behind Allbirds, Rothy's, and Brooklinen, and millions of other entrepreneurs of every size across 175 countries. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Sign up for a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash realm, all lowercase. Go to shopify.com slash R-E-A-L-M now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in. Shopify.com slash realm. Greetings, adventurers. Today we're excited to introduce you to a new story, Dark Dice, a horror podcast that blurs the line between actual play and audio drama, where the story is determined by the roll of the dice. Six adventurers embark on a journey into the ruinous domain of the Nameless God. They will never be the same again. One of the players is not what they seem after a doppelganger, a creature that can assume the form and voice of whatever it kills, infiltrates the team. As the players are picked off and replaced one at a time, can they figure out who the monster is before it's too late? Can you? Here's a quick example of what our show sounds like. The, uh, shambler with the jar of liquid inside of him. Soren Arkwright let loose an arrow that cracked the glass, passing through the spine of the creature. The Shambler still managed to maintain its forward momentum, but stumbled as it eagerly tried to bite and swipe at Soren, landing near his feet. As Jeff Goldblum has now joined our cast, Dark Dice is available however you listen to podcasts. And that was Quem Infranos, written by Mark Nixon. That's me. And I am joined by the narrator... No, 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 do it right. But it's full prose. It's not a but cast. But I play different characters. <sighs> if it makes you feel better. I <laughs> I am joined by the entire cast. Yes! David Alt. Hello, David. <laughs> Hi, Mike. How are, how are you? I've since recovered from <laughs> from that question um i'm i'm you know what i'm doing okay all things considered you know excellent excellent and and i suppose we should really tell the listeners why we're here now in this short month perfectly rectangular on good calendars everywhere Oof, why yeah. is it that we are even doing this because we just love to give david you know we're we're just two beautiful souls giving to the universe, asking it to love us. <laughs> well, yes, but also we have reached our target for season three. Yes, we have. That means, David, season three is in pre-production. Whoop, whoop. So, yes, we have got the miniseries. That is that is in production at the moment. Well, the miniseries uh, so... is what we're now kind of funding for, and that's in production as well, yeah. because I have faith. <laughs> yes, so do I. Um, and season three is, is in pre-production, so we've got a wonderful lineup of writers. Do we want to say anything about them now, or shall we get into no. dissecting the story? For my showrunning role, I take a lot of influence from Stephen Moffat and Russell T. Davis, and they've taught me mm -hmm. to never give anything away until the week before, maybe. Okay, then. Well, uh, we will leave our Martha series until... <laughs> Right there. But yes, it, it's, it does need to be said that thanks to the generosity of everyone who has 
donated to the Kofi or who has um, shared Shadows at the Door, left us a review, um, which has helped more people to hear Shadows. We are very, very pleased, very proud and very excited to be able to say that season three is in pre-production and we are very much looking forward to bringing that to your lug holes at the end of the year maybe depending it's a very ambitious (laughs) season so it might be the beginning (laughs) of next year that's not um surviving the cup (laughs) okay um yeah but fear not because in the meantime we do have a few things a few surprises and and different things lined up for you but we'll tell you more about those in a little bit more on that story later indeed but now for something completely different (sighs) quem infranos now um mark you sent this to me saying i've got a little short story for you to record and we can put it out for the listeners Mm -hmm. um and i opened it up and it was 12 pages long and i thought this is not going to be a short story that is technically david a short story I know, I know, but look at us now. We're in, what, like the 50th minute of this? Pretty much, yeah. Pretty much. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, I think as the writer, you should tell us how this story came to be. Hmm. This is an old story of mine. When I first started writing, and, and I came to writing a bit later in life, thanks to some stuff and <laughs> later in life good god you're 32 um, i'm getting on david you know my soul is old <laughs> i've been through some stuff man you know <laughs> yeah this this isn't someone starting acting at 40 this is <laughs> or i can't you know all of those inspirational things about oh this celebrity started doing the thing that they're famous for at 65 <laughs> and Things like that. It's a, that's late in life. Mm. You know, starting writing in your mid-twenties is not late in life. It depends when I'll die. You're, unless you're only just figuring out how to make characters on a piece of paper. Well, uh, I, I gesture to the two seasons of, uh, of, pop, of popular <laughs> podcasts behind us. <laughs> but yeah, so my early stories, I used to always write in the first person uh, present tense, and they were not a stone's throw away from creepypasta. And mm. it was, you know, and, and some of these went up on shadowsofthedoor.com, but eventually I started getting more confident and, frankly, better. And this story, I wanted to write my own kind of Jamesian ghost story. I wanted to follow the rules uh, of M.R. James's ghost stories, you know, like um, no sex, uh, lots of description, make sure that the presence it only kind of pokes its head in as, as it progresses. In fact, James has this lovely little rule. If I'm not careful, this sort of thing could happen to me. Mm. So, and and for more on that, I actually co-wrote Mr. James' documentary for the Writers Mythos podcast. So you can, in, in which David reads some Mr. James. It's true. And mm-hmm. I play a very northern Mr. James. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not doing the voice. Oh <laughs> come on! No. <laughs> oh please. So, with, with M.R. James, I mean, it's, it's often said that Canon Albrecht's scrapbook, it, it can almost be a, um, a tour guide uh, or an information leaflet for uh, saint Bertrand de Comines. Oh, look at you and your French. I learnt it from you. Oh. <laughs> wow. 
I kind of. I want... taught him everything he knows about tonguing. <laughs> uh, David, there are many things that you'll be unfamiliar. <laughs> 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 That's staying in. <laughs> <laughs> well, hey, yeah, that's what's... Yeah, anyway. Um, <clears throat> so, and as, uh, to my knowledge, there's not been any uh, ghost stories set in County Durham. I mean, there are ghost stories in County Durham. There is uh, Jimmy Allen, which is a ghost that haunts the bridge. There's the ghost of Dominic Cummings, uh, an evil creature that influenced... <laughs> some sort of... Yeah, no. Some sort of alien. Um, <laughs> but... Yeah, and, and and furthermore, I couldn't find any evidence of one being written about Durham Cathedral, which uh, is an absolutely beautiful cathedral. It's um, that it is. I yes. dare say one of the, the best in the world. Yeah, and and I spent a lot of time around and in the cathedral whilst actually writing the story. Mm. You can hear a lot of that in the story, mm-hmm. and I I wanted to I wanted to give you so much information, just like James, that when something sinister happens. It's almost unsuspected because you're too busy going. Oh yes, uh, the Romanesque and Gothic architecture. And, and I have spooky to say, ghost. Yeah, <laughs> <laughs> I, I I very much appreciated your descriptions of Durham Cathedral because you're you're absolutely right. When you're looking at it in the dark, it the it, it really does feel like um, the the light is sort of sucked into the cathedral rather than it sort of broadcasting out. Mm-hmm. Um, and the way. Yes, the the way that you described the 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 entrance hall and then come, coming into the cathedral and and the the grounds around, I I I very much recognised it mm. um, from my own experience. So um, yes, I appreciated that, and I appreciate your words. Thank you. <laughs> it is it's just goes to show that I listen to the stories before I record this. It is strange to have a story of mine in full prose uh, mm. on the podcast because it's not it's all just dialogue and and direction, mm. and um, and at least listeners and slash readers get to see what um, you know when I'm being artistic <laughs> and pretentious <laughs> with my language. <laughs> I think I used the word verdant in the story. I think you did, yes. <laughs> <laughs> but is so. Is is that inscription actually there on that to on that um, slab? No. However, the secret tomb is. Ah. Um, so, when I was researching the cathedral, I initially had found that. So, the cathedral has a really fucking dark history. At one point, it was used as a prison for Scottish people, and ah, yes, they. I think they locked about four hundred Scotsmen in it and just left them. And there was a lot of they burnt all of the wood and they vandalized a lot of the inside of the, of the cathedral um, when they couldn't get out. And there's a lot of tombs to this day decapitated, like the figures on the head are decapitated because of that. Um, and there's and also really some dark. cut some cut marks from uh, swords being sharpened on the on the stonework as well. That's right. And if you watch Avengers Endgame, which I know you have, David. Um, when Thor goes to Asgard, that's all filmed in Durham Cathedral, and you can see the damaged tombs behind him. Oh, cool! <laughs> uh, yeah, so I, I, and and then they never knew what happened to the bodies. And then, as they were building a cafe, 
about 10 years ago, they found a mass grave. And initially I'd considered writing this, but it, it it's such a crime, you know, what happened to those men that I, I was starting to um, think it was possibly a bit insensitive. But then I, I was talking to one of the vergers and... And I was just asking a lot of questions. I was making a lot of notes. I wasn't getting anything too interesting. And I just said, oh, is there anything, any scandals? <laughs> and uh, she went, well, no. There is the evil bishop. I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> oh, okay. Evil bishop. <laughs> <laughs> and um, it turns out there was a bishop that was just, he was a bishop because I think he was a cousin of um, the queen or something like that. And, and he was illiterate. Yeah. Oh, disgusting. <laughs> I mean, that's a scandal right there. Well, and no offense to anyone who's illiterate, but as a bishop, you consider, I think you've got to, you've got to be expected to read like English, Gaelic, Latin, French, mm-hmm, mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Icelandic, I don't know. <laughs> um, <laughs> but, um, and, and there was instructions when he died that he had to be buried in a prominent part of the cathedral. So they saw, they thought, right, we're going to put him right in front of the altar, but we're going to walk over his grave every day. <laughs> and they now cover it with a rug ah. and not that I'm encouraging anyone to do this but if you ever find yourself in Durham Cathedral and you go to the, the altar kick back the big green rug and you will find a large piece of wood nailed down mm. so then the the name of Chinnery may be <laughs> you know, viewers of certain British sitcoms from the very late 90s will know the name of Chinnery <laughs> as being the incompetent vet uh, in fact the downright dangerous vet in uh, the League of Gentlemen so for listeners that may not have watched I, the best way I can um, tell you who Chinnery is there's an amazing scene where Chinnery as a vet is invited to a farmer's house to put down his dog and the farmer's like oh, she's, she's not getting or David's laughing because he already knows what's coming and he's like oh she's not doing well um, you know when she's really oh, excuse me I've got to leave the room and he's like he's in tears and uh, Chinnery approaches this uh, sheepdog by the fire who's hello there hello oh at your last innings are you well, you don't need to worry about a thing. So just, yes, uh, you go to sleep. You you think about chasing all of those sheep and chasing all of those mice. That's it. So Chittery puts down the dog only for the farmer to come in holding a very sickly dog. This is a... <laughs> Isn't it? Isn't he holding a sheep, a lamb? Oh, it's a, a sheep, yes. It is, a yes. It's, it's a, a sickly possibly. lamb, yes. Yes. <laughs> and it's like, and, uh, the, the dog is fine. <laughs> and, and, oh, oh yeah, that that's Bessie. Oh, you're all right, aren't you? She's my pride and joy. <laughs> oh, this one, the, uh, the uh, sleeping one. Yes. I'm, I'm afraid I've got a bit of bad news. <laughs> and most of Chinnery's scenes ended in that line. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. <laughs> Including one where he somehow blew up a tortoise. <laughs> that, that was brilliant. <laughs> we, we can't keep repeating these ones. Yes, you have yes. to look them up on YouTube. Yeah, and... absolutely. The League of Gentlemen. Um, it is now 22 years old, which is terrifying. Uh, shut up. So I had interviewed Mark Gatiss, and I've discussed this before, um, when Shadows of the Doll was a website, and 
when I interviewed him and I put the transcript up, the website exploded in 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 hits, and and it just it and and it never kind of subsided. It really got the website noticed. So it was my thank you to Mark Gatiss, who is from County Durham, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. Uh, that I named the the author Chinnery. Mm-hmm. And like yes. all writers, I have to have at least one protagonist who is a writer. <laughs> Although Chinnery's definitely well, more successful than I am. Write what you know. Do you know uh, this is the part where I knew I was getting too big for my own boots? Um, I I took part in this blog thing once, and you had to, you had to be your character being interviewed, and it was just, and so I chose Trap. Mm-hmm, of course, I don't even think this will be on the internet anymore. And it was like you know, and it was like insights into Trap. It's like, what are you reading right now? And it was like, oh, I'm I'm reading the new Chinnery novel. <laughs> <laughs> and I thought, now I've gone too far. Yeah, you, you've expanded your universe. <laughs> yeah. Oh, but uh, what's really interesting about this story is that it. it um, I I wrote. I I I feel like I achieved what I set out to do. I wrote my version of a modern M.R. James story, and at that point, I kind of had this silent agreement with myself where I thought. I don't need to mimic James anymore. And at this point, I had written Leave a Light On For Me in full prose. Um, so I started writing my own stories, and then I started breaking M.R. James's rules to some extent. And I think the next story I wrote was Silent Warnings, which um, you know I try to put in a little bit of, of gay subtext and stuff like that in, into that story. <sighs> You know, it's for the gay market, David, you know? Um, yeah, 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 yeah. Burgeoning gay market. <laughs> <laughs> but I certainly I, I certainly recognised within um, Quemin Frenos the, that, the very, very Jamesian style. And there was a point where I thought, okay, so this is, so he's going to have an experience, but then he's going to get away mm. and be able to talk about it. And I thought that was where you broke the rules. Mm. By by having him disappear down into the pit. Yeah, because I'm aware that it's a subtle story, and if you're used to reading like the Russian sleep experiment and <laughs> other such famous creepy pastas, then it's almost you know I I want to reward the reader for their patience mm. in in having this wallop. At the end, <laughs> yes. One of my greatest achievements as a writer is this story appears in Shadows of the Door, an anthology, mm-hmm. and it was read at Newcastle Castle by a actor called David Silk, and um, he's a brilliant storyteller, and he he works at Newcastle Castle. And I was in the audience as it was being read, and as it got to the hand coming out of the grave, two women at the back of the room went, oh. <laughs> <laughs> and there are many sounds a man wants to hear a woman make. <laughs> and in that context, that was definitely one. Of them. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but like I say, there's a, there's a lot of history in it, and and I really hope it kind of educates people a bit about Durham Cathedral because I think what most people would know about it is that that's where they filmed. Some of the first two Harry Potter movies. Mm, yes, the Cloisters was it? Yes, the, yes. And uh, certainly, because I, 
I went to Durham in November 2019, I think, because, of course, all of last year was just a write-off for various reasons. Um, yeah, so a, a couple of friends of mine flew over from Texas, and so we all met up in Durham because they were visiting family in Berwick-upon-Tweed. And we met up in Durham and uh, they were quite surprised, A, that trains were so good because, of course, in Texas you don't have public transport, mm-hmm. um, let alone vaguely functional public transport. Um, and they were very, very surprised at all of the hills and they were not, they were not ready for the walking and for the up and down. So they came all the way from Texas... To visit family in Berwick, and oh, then to they see said, family. "Well, I thought it was like yes. we've come all the way from Texas to see world famous Berwick upon Tweed, <laughs> where the war never ends." Yes, um, in about the um, Scots. Well, uh, it was. I'm, I'm going to have to look this up because it's. But it was essentially that. Uh, uh, when war was declared. I know what you're getting at. I know this too, yeah. Yes. So, Berwick-upon-Tweed has gone from being Scottish to English before the Union so many times that Berwick-upon-Tweed had to be considered a separate entity uh, within the United Kingdom. So when foreign countries were uh, declaring war on us, it would have to be, we declare war on England, Scotland. Uh, I don't think Wales was in the Union at this point. England, Scotland, unless it was, sorry, Wales. Uh, England <laughs> in general. Um, England, Scotland, and Berwick-upon-Tweed. But one of my favourite bits of trivia about this is in a peace treaty, the Russians forgot to include Berwick-upon-Tweed. So technically, Russia was at war with Berwick upon Tweed until the sixties, when Berwick upon Tweed declared peace, and uh, the mayor said the people of Moscow can sleep soundly in their beds, <laughs> and I learned that from Map Men, which is an uh, excellent YouTube channel. Yes, yes, it is. Yes, so that was December nineteen sixty six when that happened. Nineteen sixty six. Yeah. What it did they the say? Declaration... It was the declaration of the Crimean War against Russia in eighteen fifty three which Queen Victoria supposedly signed as Victoria, Queen of Britain, Ireland, Berwick-upon-Tweed and all British dominions. When the Treaty of Paris was signed to conclude the war, Berwick-upon-Tweed was left out, which (laughs) meant that supposedly one of Britain's smallest towns was officially at war with one of the world's largest powers, and the conflict extended by the lack of a peace treaty for over a century. In, in Map Men, they say the people of Berwick upon Tweed had a big party and, and a big ceremony. The people of Russia uh, responded by knowing nothing about it. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. Yeah. It's quite nice, Berwick, though. You, I've already ever, I've never stopped there. I much like Chinnery, I've I've just got seen it as I've passed through mm. on my way to Glasgow or Edinburgh. Yes, same. It's really, you know, speaking of the time that's passed, it's, um, it is it is so surreal that season two is not only finished, but behind us, that I, I listened to episodes over the last few weeks, just, I don't know, vanity. So I, I have issues with concentrating, and it's like, I don't remember making them sometimes. <laughs> I don't remember writing it. <laughs> 
Yeah, I mean, there there have been times where I someone has said, "Oh, you're in this episode of this podcast," and I say, <laughs> "I am." And and there there have been times I just can't remember recording mm. the lines, mm-hmm. which is awful. But yeah, there there have been times that has happened. This is why I'm glad we don't have a, a huge single story that continues because I would forget some of the lore, I think, mm-hmm. or, or stuff that's mm-hmm. happened. Mm-hmm. And I have so many uh, like potential stories for Troughton that when I'm writing him, I'm like, has he done that? Like, no, that was that was chinnery. <laughs> you know, I say. Um, <laughs> Just, just there with with his little uh, with his little book saying, "Have we done Asgard yet?" <laughs> oh. no, no. Jim the fish. Oh, Jim the fish. <laughs> Jim the fish. We've done Jim the fish. <laughs> but yeah, so it it must be because you're essentially working with Troughton at multiple different points on his timeline, mm. and. And that timeline can be rejigged. Time can be rewritten. At any point. And time can be rewritten. No, not those times. Not one line. Don't you dare. (laughs) (laughs) Spoilers. Where do you even get handcuffs? Um, But... (laughs) Yeah, it's... The thing is, is that there's several... It's a bit like when you're like... And I haven't haven't even done this that much, but it's a bit like when you're running a Dungeons & Dragons game. There's so many branches it could go off to, and and I won't really know what happens until I put pen to paper. Um, You know, and and I don't think it's a big secret to say that Troughton will come back in Season 3. Really? That's a scoop, David. Wow. (laughs) You heard it here first, everyone. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> well, you know, it's quite nice because a lot of people when they they donate to the Kofi, it's like more Trouton, please. And I'm like, yes, I'm like, oh, great, yes. great, great. Yeah, it's it's fine. I'm not, like, <laughs> but like one day I'm gonna be like, what do I do with him? <laughs> He's already had a massive emotional moment. I'll just it'll just be like Trouton on holiday, and it'll like. <laughs> I was sitting. In my hotel room. What the fuck is that? <laughs> it was me trying to be I Alan Bennett. I was scrubbing me bottle. <laughs> <laughs> Reference to the Actors' Roundtable, if you haven't already heard it. Mm-hmm. mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> so one, one question I do have for mm. you. Um, where did the Latin come from? Quem infranos, etc. Well, David, there were a people called the Romans and mm-hmm. they um, I'm just going to let you keep going on this one because I want to I want to see how long you can keep well, this up. Well David um, Terry Deary who wrote Horrible Histories is from County Durham Ah I'm okay. whipping out all the County Durham knowledge I think the only other one I've got yeah. left is Billy Elliot is set in I think it's set in Trimden <laughs> which is which is why it was so funny seeing at time of recording, ladies, gentlemen, non-binary people, etc. Um, we have just had a, a Twitter spat about musicals mm. and uh, a lovely story that came out about Billy Elliot. Mm. Mark, would you like to uh, just... So I was in New York. Give voice to it once again. I was again. in New York and, you know, I was walking through Times Square and, you know, if you've been there, you know what Times Square is like. You know, there, there are uh, people trying to sell you tickets everywhere and this guy just approached me and... Um, and he, and he said, oh, you look like a man who wants to see Billy Elliot. 
And I said, I did not fly <laughs> all the way from County Durham to see a musical set in County Durham. <laughs> At the time, it, Hamilton wasn't a thing. I didn't actually even see a musical. Of oh, so when are we going to get Loose Ground the musical? <laughs> <laughs> my neck hurts, my neck hurts. <laughs> <laughs> I'm coming, I'm coming, I'm coming. Hold on, hold on. I'm still coming, I'm still coming. I'm, that's the David Alt sex tape musical. <laughs> <laughs> I'm overcome with a sense of shame. <laughs> Is that the Mark Nixon sex tape? <laughs> <laughs> Perhaps from another time. Um, <laughs> So, Romans, uh, Latin. Yes, um, yes. Mm, Terry Deary. Yeah, and um, I just, I wanted a spooky little saying, and I, I kind of spitballed a few sayings that sounded vaguely old, and mm -hmm. there was someone in my family at the time who um, knew Latin, so she helped me mm -hmm. with it, and yeah, I think it... it yeah, it was. Um, it's probably the most Jamesian part of the story because there's mm, um, definitely, of course, definitely. in a whistle when he finds. Um, oh, I've got these words in Latin tattooed on my arm. Hang on, David. Let me just get my top off and I'll I'll read them for you. Oh, oh, I say. <laughs> Is it, ladies and gentlemen, I'm being treated to a show here. <laughs> I have been in the gym. Um, <laughs> I think it's like Q Q Vene. Come on, Dave. Am I gonna have to look this up for you? Yeah, you're, you're the you're the Cambridge man, as James would call you. Indeed, yes. Uh, fur flafle beast on one side, and quis est iste qui venit. Who is this? Or who is coming? Quis est iste qui venit. And on if the on the flip for... side, I think the ca it's not said in the story what that means, but I think the the character reckons it might mean thief, give it back, or something like that. Mm. Which is an interesting thing to inscribe in a whistle. I'll just put a threat to mm. a potential thief. It's like buying an iPhone, and you know how you can get like a message lasered in the back, and you just get yes. you know in the case, and it just says twat. <laughs> how do yes. you sleep at night? <laughs> oh, there's a wonderful uh, YouTube channel called Mark Rober. And if you have not seen him, he does these amazing engineering things. So uh, mm. right the way from uh, making uh, jelly that you can, a, a pool full of jelly, like proper gelatin type jelly. He is, um, of course, he calls it jello because he's American, um, to a squirrel uh ninja course to stop hit all of the squirrels from getting the food that he's put out for the birds and so he, he decided well let's see what these what these squirrels can actually do and it's this uh, it's a whole load of um so there's um a rope bridge that's tied at the ends not not with two points but with one point so it makes it very twisty turny when the when the squirrels go across it um there's a point where there is a as a sexy lady squirrel who's just uh, 
sitting there and if the if the squirrels pause too long by the sexy lady squirrel um they they get catapulted off so is it just um, like a normal lady squirrel or is it like a squirrel in like it's, a thong or something it's it's a stuffed squirrel well it's a it's a um it's a toy squirrel which has a a, a lacy bra and some panties on but a squirrel's never seen presumably a squirrel has never seen another squirrel in lingerie well well quite yes and this is why donald duck doesn't wear trousers um so, um but yeah so, what, to so not constrain his raging heart on well quite quite um corkscrew and pointed and and whatever else that ducks uh anyway um nightmare penis <laughs> So, uh, Mark Rober has, for the last three Christmases, made um, glitter bombs, but more and more uh, elaborate glitter bombs. Because in America, you when you get a parcel delivered, quite a lot of the time, it seems, from what I view on YouTube, the delivery drivers will just place it on your doorstep. Mm. Rather than knocking and seeing if you're in, they'll just place it on the doorstep. And of course, people passing by could just go up to your doorstep, pick it up, and take it off and take it away. And, and of course, in Britain, the uh, from certain delivery companies, they will whisper to your door that they're here and then just put a slip mm-hmm. through it saying, sorry, you were yep. out, even though I can yeah. see you. <laughs> <laughs> Very true, and you now have to travel 30 miles in order to get to the collection <laughs> depot. Uh, yes, so... Um, these glitter bombs take the, the the most recent one where you when you remove the lid there are four camera phones with this. sim cards broadcasting um then uh some fart spray but really disgusting fart spray and then of course the glitter whirl that uh, that sprays glitter absolutely everywhere so people are are filmed when they take take the 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 top off this and and Glitter sprays everywhere. They get this horrible smell. There's even a little um, pr- prong that pokes out that stops you putting the lid back on. So, so what you're saying, then- David, is a whistle and I'll come to you, my lad, would have been a lot more effective if rather than a spooky ghost, glitter yep. starts Fart pissing spray, out of glitter. the, of the whistle. <laughs> Fart spray. So, David, have you recorded anything for any good miniseries lately? I have indeed. Yes, yes. There's a there's this small production company called Shadows at the Door. Mm. Um, they're cool doing name. a mini series, which is, you know, hopefully coming out in a couple of months' time, mm. maybe late spring. Yeah, something like that. Uh, but yeah, it's it's a lot of fun. Do you want how many how how many details and spoilers would you like? More than you can count. <laughs> Uh, more than I can count. Yes. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. I could hearken to mm-hmm. a hint or two. I don't even know if that made sense you know, grammatically. <laughs> it did. It did. It did. Yeah. That, that, that worked. That worked. Yeah. Um, well, yes. Yeah, so that that's what I've been recording re- um, recently. Mm. I'm very much looking forward to to hearing what our listeners have to say about it. Yeah. But we also have. We also have something else up our sleeves, don't we, Mark? We do. And this was your idea, David. It was, yes. Because you kind of said, what if drunk stories, but sober? 
yes, pretty much. So I thought the the Drungo stories they're fun, but it would um, if I'm ever going to do another one, I I would want to do it sober. Um, and I thought I would well, want you are... to do it sober as well. <laughs> Which reminds me, David, Lady Macbeth. So, <laughs> <laughs> I've been trying so desperately not to bring that up. <laughs> um, but yeah, so we, I, I thought there are some lovely short stories, like proper short stories, which should only take like 10 to 15 minutes, mm-hmm. um, that we could just do as nice little spooky... Like, way too short to be a full episode. Yeah, yeah. Mm-hmm. And, uh, and uh, but that are out of copyright, but that are a lot of fun, and so that's that's where we came up with that, or yeah, where we came up with this idea for what are we calling it again? Shadows at the door presents spook stories. <laughs> spook stories, which is of course yes. a, uh, what E. F. Benson used to call his short stories. M. R. James called his pleasing terrors. E. F. Benson was a bit like. Oh shit, that's taken. Um, I don't know. Fuck it. <laughs> Spook stories. <laughs> it's delight. It's delightfully camp, which I think will echo the um, the uh, presentation of such stories. So they'll be without. So pre-production is is huge, and and you've got to remember. You know, I work full time, and. Mm-hmm. Um, and I have two jobs. I many nights, even this week, I come home. I have something to eat. You know, I, I send a text to a loved one, and then it's like a few hours of shadows at the door work. So it's 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 a really big labor. And so these episodes, we can put them together fairly quickly if we mm. don't have music, if we don't have sound effects. Um, mm-hmm. So it'll be you know one episode. It'll be David reading us a story. I'll chip in, make a few comments here and there, and then um, we'll we'll chat about it afterwards. And um, we said we were going to do four, didn't we, David? Yes, we, we'll we'll try you out with four. See see what the response is. But uh, I've got a couple of Edgar Allan Poe stories that I'm going to bring up. Mm-hmm. Uh, you what? Do you want to tell the no. listeners what? No. Okay. And there'll be others. <laughs> The Others. It's not the um, name of the story. It's a, no, a film no, it's starring Nicole Kidman yeah. and Doctor Who's Christopher Eccleston. <gasps> Fantastic. <laughs> um, so, yes. Yeah, so, uh, so that will be hitting your podcast feeds at some point. We're just, as, as I say, we're, we're just trying to see, give you some little filler episodes which should hopefully tide you over until the miniseries and then if they are a hit then we'll bring some more through the summer and the autumn mm-hmm. yeah and hope and, as we, uh, yeah. we hope it's it's going to be something we can do quite quickly without much production behind it so mm-hmm. uh, and then of course when you eventually get the miniseries and then um quite a bit after that you'll season three which will be um 11 episodes Mm-hmm. You know, and and again, we're we're trying in in the ways that we we built on season one with season two. We're trying to do that again with season three, and uh, you will see more cast members, uh, and of course, our shiny new website. Ooh, yes, we we should really talk about the shiny new website. It's pretty shiny. It's lovely. Yeah, it was uh, it was actually uh, designed um, by one of our lovely listeners, a gentleman called Liam. 
Um, it was a really uh, good experience working with him on that. And uh, now uh, we've got one place where you can find our merch. And we now ship the merch to North America because uh, our old provider... Um, just didn't provide to North America, so um, I ordered it's a shirt. It's not as if it's a huge flag. market, really. Sorry, <laughs> it's not a huge market. It's definitely really. not the majority of our audience. No. Yeah. No. So there's that. You can also get the uh, Shadows of the Door hardback. Um, you know, so um, where, where of course you can read Queminfranos and twelve other stories. Um, for example. Uh, from Christopher Long, who you uh, who uh, you heard a story of his in season one, along with Pete Alex Harris, and in season two uh, we had M Regan, and she's got a story in there as well. Um, well, there is a, there's a, you can set yourself up for a hard time, David, when you mm-hmm. look for meaning in things. So the other earlier this week, David Lynch said, "Not today, but tomorrow I have an announcement to make," and mm-hmm. and then I realized. That on that day, tomorrow, what was then tomorrow, but is now in the past, wobbly, wobbly, timey, wimey. Anyway, um, I thought, oh my god, on this day in 2015, he announced the return of Twin Peaks. Everyone was on Twitter going, okay, announce the return of Twin Peaks. We all know you're doing something on Netflix, David. And he and he's got a YouTube channel where he reads. He just tells you the weather. And he just came on and went, I was reading the comments, and everyone is so lovely. And I was like. Fuck you, David Lynch. <laughs> I love you, but fuck you. <laughs> and he has a masterclass. And someone, and I wish I could remember who did it, but someone just did, David Lynch teaches the art of trolling. On, <laughs> on trolling, on trolling on masterclass. So there is, a, there is a problem with looking for these things. But um, it's funny, I was mm. talking to someone about this the other day, was, you know, as... You know, as a very much an atheist, I I am still a romantic soul, and and I like to see bigger meaning in things. But for me, um, I get a cracking view of the night sky from the back of my house sometimes because of the graveyard, and there's not much light, and I can just mm. get lost just looking up, mm. thinking, "Dude, this is technically time travel." <laughs> <laughs> well, it was it was quite fun because um, yesterday I was doing a virtual planetarium show for a 60th birthday party which was really nice hmm. so the the this this gentleman's son had arranged uh my services as a planetary David can listeners hire your services for children's parties and yes they can excellent <laughs> is it does it have to be a planetarium show or do you do balloon animals it's uh, a juggling. doing balloon animals from afar is a bit shit, don't you think? It's like, ah, look, look what I've made, but you can't have it. <laughs> You're clipping, David. Anyway, yep. um, but maybe you could just like scrumble up a balloon and then your hand goes off camera. <laughs> a sphinx. <laughs> Yeah, this is why the virtual planetarium thing works a little bit better. I don't know, it's my birthday before long, David. I'm just wondering what I can hire you for. (laughs) Many things, Mark, many things. What if our listeners uh, were of an erotic disposition? So there's this virtual planetarium show that I was doing, and one of the wonderful (laughs) things that that we could do... the size of Jupiter. (laughs) (laughs) So there's Orion's belt, and hanging down from Orion's belt... (laughs) 
Those little three stars there <laughs> are the Orion Nebula and two other stars. Don't be dirty. I was going to say um, the Big Dipper, but then I knew you were going to tell me that the Big Dipper is nowhere near Orion's belt. It's Yeah, it's nowhere near, and it's only the Big Dipper in North America. What do we call it? The Plow. Do we? We do. Huh. For us, it's the Plow. I just love the it. French, it's some- the <laughs> I love it that one day someone looked to the sky, saw f- four stars, and went, ah, a horse. <laughs> well, Pegasus anyway. the flying horse. I mean, that, the, 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 the best one that I always love is the two stars which make up... Yeah, yeah two stars. Two stars which make a line. Mm-hmm. And someone has said, you know what? That's a small dog. And you know what? I bet, David, like most things in history, I bet they were just doing it to impress a romantic interest. <laughs> yes. Oh, you're so oh, yes, smart, you see. Galileo. <laughs> yes. You see, you see those <laughs> those six stars up there that look like a hexagon, which has been pulled apart a little bit. Yes, that's that's a charioteer holding a goat. <laughs> Our Riga, ladies and gentlemen, and everyone else. Um, anyway, so one of the things that you can do with the particular piece of software that we use for these virtual planetarium shows is to travel in time and because it was a 60th birthday party we went back to uh that day in february 1961 and showed the night sky above above south end on sea as it was yeah. uh, which is which is great fun because i was able to say okay yep there's there's mercury there's venus there's jupiter blah 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 blah, and these these the are that and then i um showed where the sun was because uh the sun was in capricorn on the day that this gentleman was born uh where he thought that for all his life he was an aquarius but the sun was actually in capricorn and i was able to show them i was able to travel in time to go to say look every two thousand years it goes back a star sign mm. goes back a zodiac constellation. It was really, really interesting just to just to do that kind of time travel because we can do that time travel now with our technology. You know, David. I mean, I know you're a fully qualified astrophysicist, but I, you know, that I still find that very fascinating. And I have this horrible image that for some reason one day you're sick and I have to cover for you. And I'm like, <laughs> oh, and I've got a microphone in the planetarium, and I'm like, ah, space. The final frontier. <laughs> Look to the audience. Oh. These are the voyages. <laughs> are, are these your nightmares, Mark? Are you, are, are you wearing nothing but your pants in this? Well, I'm well dressed in this. But, uh, okay. but oh, half an hour later, I'm just sat there going, and that's when Tasha Yard died. And then, like, <laughs> <laughs> and then everyone's just really interested in my... Uh, Star Trek retellings. <laughs> mm, mm, mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> no, my nightmare is performing live over Zoom mm-hmm. and trying not to laugh at <laughs> Erica Sanderson's very broad <laughs> accent. <laughs> I tried to watch a bit of that on your YouTube channel afterwards and I couldn't make it. It was like, really? No. Oh. And, uh,. <laughs> God, that was that was my nightmare, and I was not <laughs> naked. So <laughs> that was really good, though. People said. really enjoyed it. People did enjoy it. Yeah, mm-hmm. 
and um, even if you didn't people did and if people (laughs) want to bask in in things like that and 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 enjoy me being uncomfortable there is of course the new shadows at the door facebook group uh which is numbers are growing and uh yeah yeah. come join us david's not there because he's aloof but um i'm there (laughs) and i'm somewhat approachable so (laughs) you are you're very much approachable yeah Uh, because Whenever, so when people uh, contact us through uh, Kofi or my Twitter account, you're talking to me. But everywhere else, they're talking to you pretty much, aren't they? Yeah, the person who carries the majority of of the labour yeah. for this enterprise. Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. Yep, I make no secret about that. Some, sometimes, if you contact David through his Twitter account, it's still me. Which reminds me, David, I uh, booked you in um, mm-hmm. for some podcasts. Um, with cool, a- yeah, that's great. Yeah, yeah. Just send me the script uh, f- five minutes before I'm starting. <laughs> no, nah, that's a bit there. generous. Make it, make it thirty seconds. <laughs> oh my god, I'm, that's how I'm gonna, I'm gonna get Lin Manuel Miranda to give me the rights to Hamilton, and that's how I'm gonna. Do it. <laughs> I'm like, all right, David. I hope you can rap in a French accent. <laughs> yes, yes, I can. Pro- I, I'll. I'll... <laughs> as long as I've got the script, I'm going to be fine. <laughs> On that note, um, so yes. yes, although we're funded for season three, please do uh, consider backing out coffee. It's going to help fund the mini series that we're making, and also the general costs of keeping the podcast. Um, for lack of a better Website word, and alive. Yeah, yeah. Alive. Well, yes. We're we're doing. We we don't want your podcast feeds to go dark. Essentially, uh, so we're going to be keeping on putting out things, uh, giving you nice little tidbits here and there, trying to keep ourselves in the <laughs> in the zone for actually recording things together because it has been quite a long time. This has been heavily edited. This one because David and it, I. It, it was, really has. Yes. Yeah. It's like who who are you? Well, like we a couple here? in bed, and the passion has died. <laughs> about it died about seven months ago, and we're trying again <laughs> because we read an article in the Guardian that said that we should try, and it's a little bit awkward. You know that relationships don't have to be like this, don't you? <laughs> <laughs> David, that wasn't an experience. That was a complete <laughs> fiction. I'm a writer, David. <laughs> then you should know, Mark, that I'm an actor. How dare you? <laughs> Quite. If, if I'm acting bored, it's only because I'm acting bored <laughs> with this relationship. <laughs> I'm actually as in love with you as the day I met you. <laughs> When you sold me one of your books. <laughs> so yes, listeners, dearest, dearest listeners. For more of uh, David and I's dysfunctional marriage. <laughs> we will be bringing you more stuff throughout the year. There's the miniseries, there's our spook stories, um, and there will be various other things to keep you amused and entertained hopefully Mm -hmm. but uh, do please keep in touch with us at shadows at door if you want to talk to mark or at david alt if you want to talk to me don't worry if you only want to talk to me i just uh, showed a look of offense there doesn't pick Mm. up well on audio but no that's okay (laughs) 
<laughs> but otherwise, uh, thank you once again for making Series 3 a reality. And uh, please keep on sharing the podcast, giving us five-star reviews. And with any luck, we shall be seeing you very soon. You've been listening to a Shadows at the Door production. Story by Mark Nixon. Performances by David Alt. Score by Nico Vitesi. Production by Mark Nixon. Production copyright Shadows at the Door Publishing 2020. Story copyright of the author. If you enjoyed this production, please consider leaving a review wherever you listen to podcasts. And we'll see you very soon. Oh, it shows how much we're out of practice on this, doesn't <laughs> it? Doesn't it? Because <laughs> <laughs> I've been asking insightful questions and commenting on, on the writing and everything, mm. and that's totally unlike me. Contained herein are the heresies of Radolf Burntwine, erstwhile monk turned traveling medical investigator. Join me as I uncover the blasphemous truth of a plague-ridden world that ours is not a loving God, and we are not its favoured children. The Heresies of Radolf Buntwein, coming January 2nd, wherever podcasts are available.